Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I have come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. And so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, and then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malin. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And then the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Amen. Thank you guys for reading Ruth 4 to us. I hope, I trust that you have enjoyed this short book of just four chapters. It's a a little story that we find tucked away in the Old Testament. I think it's the perfect introduction uh, into Advent uh, this next week. Um, But I also think what a great book for the days we are living in right now. And, And obviously, Every generation has been able to say that about every book. But I know that I've needed this short book of Ruth 
Uh, I've needed to remember that God is always at work, even when it seems like things are, are hard, that no matter um, how, how trying life can be, and my life has certainly been nothing like Ruth chapter 1, but no matter how hard life is, we must run to God as our refuge and trust him to meet our deepest needs, trust that he loves us and that he is at work. And uh, I know I, I talk about this quite a bit, um, that life is it's hard. And I think we need to fight um, our, our American culture that, that tells us life should be easy, that the chart should just go f- uh, up up and to the right. Um, and I think as, as Christians, that's infiltrated our faith, or at least it easily infiltrates our faith. We think that we should just be able to like step onto this escalator that just leads us to eternity, this smooth ride with no real difficulties, uh, certainly uh, a ride without tragedy and without pain, that, that if, if we want to be married, that we should be able to get a spouse that adores us, that if, if we want to have kids, then, then we should have kids that, that do what we hope that they would do, that um, certainly that no one that we love would get sick or even die, that, that we would get a, a house or the career or, or the friends or whatever it is that we, we want, that, that life would, would just be this smooth ride. And we know it's not that way. Life is not an escalator, right? It's more like a mountain trail that we would find in the gorge with switchbacks and, and boulders and perhaps sections of the trail as we come to it are, are washed out and we've got to find another way. Um, maybe, maybe on the trail we we run into some wildlife. We, we run into a, to a bear like like I did once on, on Hamilton Mountain, or or, or or we're going along the trail and, and we realize that the map is off or, or our GPS isn't working. Life isn't isn't an escalator ride. It's hard. But for those who trust in Christ, the best is yet to come. So if you're just joining us for the, for the first time in Ruth this week, uh, I want to get you caught up. Um, Ruth 1, we meet the family of Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, her two sons. This takes place during the time of Judges. If you haven't read the book of Judges, this was a dark, dark time in the history of God's people. Now, over and over again, it just says that everyone did what they, what they wanted, what they saw fit in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. So it was this, this, this sin-filled time. So Naomi and Elimelech, they live in Bethlehem, the promised land of God's people. We're told that there's a famine. So Elimelech and Naomi, they take their two sons and they move to a foreign land. They move to Moab, hoping to find a better life. At some point after arriving, and we don't get the details, but Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi with her two sons. Her two sons eventually marry uh, Moabite women, and, and we talked about this before, that the Israelites were not supposed to marry foreign uh, foreigners, uh, and, and it wasn't like a racial purity thing. It had everything to do with, with worshiping Yahweh, because so often when they would marry a foreigner, they, the foreigners would, would bring these foreign gods, these fake gods, these idols, and, 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 and over time, God's people wouldn't, wouldn't worship just Yahweh, or maybe they wouldn't even worship Yahweh at all. They'd, they'd worship these foreign gods. So Naomi's sons marry these Moabite women. Neither of them has a baby. They're, they're barren. So, so they deal with this childlessness for 10 years, and then both sons die. Naomi now has no husband, no sons, no grandkids. She's left with two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and she's living in a foreign land, a land that is not her home. 
But she hears that God had visited the land, that he'd visited the people in Bethlehem, that he, he'd provided food, that there was a harvest coming, and she decides to return. Now, both Orpah and Ruth, they love Naomi, and we don't get the full story, but they just love her, and they want to return with her. She gives this speech laying out all her reasons why they shouldn't return, why it didn't make any sense. Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, is convinced she stays in Moab, but Ruth clings to Naomi saying, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. So Naomi and Ruth return together. And Naomi is depressed. She's bitter. And we get it, right? Reading Ruth 1, we understand. And the people of the town see her. Is that Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Let that be my new name. But we get this little glimpse of hope as it says they return during the barley harvest. Then Ruth 2, we find out that Ruth is a hard-working woman. She tells Naomi day one, she's going to go to the fields and gleans uh, to glean food for them, to get food. She hopes that some landowner will look favorably upon her. She goes, and the narrator tells us she just so happens to end up at the field of Boaz, who is the relative of Elimelech, and he isn't married. He notices her. He provides an abundance of food for her. He invites her to eat at his table with him. He protects her, telling the men, like, hey, do not lay a hand on her. In fact, make sure that she gets plenty of food. He sends her with all of this food. She asks, why are you treating me this way? And he says, it's, it's because you've sought refuge under God's wings. He, he can see that Ruth is trusting in God as he's committed to her mother-in-law, Naomi. So Ruth goes home. She lugs home somewhere around 30 pounds of grain. And Naomi is just blown away as Ruth comes in the door. She says, where did you go? Whose land was this? And Ruth mentions Boaz. And then Boaz, or and then Naomi remembers who Boaz is. Boaz is a relative, which means not only does he have the right to redeem the land, but he could marry Ruth and he could carry on the family line that looked to be lost forever. So Ruth three, Naomi hatches this plan. And Ruth would go at night to the threshing floor where Boaz would be winnowing the barley after he eats and drinks and falls asleep. Then she would come out from hiding. Uh, she would come and uncover his feet and then lay down near him and, and, and wait for him to wake up and tell her what to do. Well, he stirs, probably because his feet were cold. He stirs, he sees a woman laying at his feet. He says, who are you? And, and she reveals that it's Ruth and, and lets it be known that she would love to be his wife. And, and as you're reading Ruth 3, you're like, man, what is, what's going to happen here? Right? Is, is he going to take advantage of her? Or, or, or will he yell at her and, and tell her, what are you doing? Get away from here. I'm not that kind of guy. Or will, will he accept her, her proposal? He speaks kindly to her. He's clearly ready to marry her. But we find out, we found out last week that there's a problem. There's another family member that is nearer kin than he is. So this guy has the first right to redeem the land in Ruth. 
boo, right? This is not what we have been cheering for. We're ready for Ruth 4 today, and we're all rooting against, or at least I'm rooting against, this kinsman redeemer. We hope that he's an idiot that somehow has not heard about how awesome Ruth is because we want it to be Boaz. I don't know about you, but I'm smitten over Boaz as well, right? He's a gentleman, and I want Ruth and him to marry and have babies, um, not this other guy. who He's probably a great guy, but I'm emotionally invested in Boaz at this point. So verse one, we hear about this kinsman redeemer, but first I, I want to go back to give us a little more background. Um, it, Leviticus 25, you can turn there or it will be up on the screen, but Leviticus 25 verse 24, and this is, this is how God had, had set up in, in uh, Israel's uh, way of life, in, in his law, for there to be a way to redeem. So it says, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land, right? Redemption is buying, purchasing, or it's, it's, uh, it's setting free by paying a price. So verse 25, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So the picture is that this nearest adult male relative, the nearest of kin, um, he, he is the, the kinsman redeemer that would have the right if he was able to purchase the property. Um, so he could redeem the property. He could buy it back. So God had set this way of, of doing things to provide when his people faced uh, tragic circumstances. Uh, the, the redemption of the land was, was made possible. God, God set it up to be this way. And, and land uh, was everything in that day. I mean, we think about the, the value of, of land now, but, but even more so for them, land meant everything. So there was a provision for the land to stay in the clan. If the land was lost because of famine or death, it could be redeemed so that it stayed with the clan. It would not be lost forever. Now, Deuteronomy 25, uh, we'll, we'll read not just about the land, but, but about providing an heir so that the, uh, the, the, the line, the family line will not be blotted out. Deuteronomy 25.5, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Verse 7, and if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. We don't get the sandal thing, but we understand what face spitting means. And she shall, uh, she shall answer and say, so it shall be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house and the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. You do not want that. Verse 10 sounds funny to us, but we get it's a shameful picture, 
This is a big deal. God had already made a way for redemption in the family line, in the land to happen. Um, when, when there was a widow, there was, there was a way so that the family could continue, that it, it would not die out. And there was an honor in providing for your family. So now in Ruth 4, Boaz is going to go to the nearer kinsman redeemer who has the right to this land and, and to take in this family. So we go to the gate where there will be people gathered, right? This is like the, the, the hub. This is where business, uh, business transaction take, uh, take place here. And the narrator uh, seems to go out of his way to not tell us the name of this uh, redeemer. He, he's, the, he's, he's Mr. No Name. He, uh, uh, Boaz says, my friend to him, which is, is like saying Mr. So-and-so, right? He doesn't even get named in the story. But he calls the nearer kinsman redeemer. He calls the elders of the town so that they can sit down and, and witness uh, what is about to happen. So they sit down, and later in the chapter, we find out that apparently a crowd has gathered uh, around them. They want to see the action. They know something is going down, and they want to be the first to be able to, uh, to, to probably spread what happened. So verse 3. Boaz says to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So Mr. So-and-so can redeem the land. Right? He can purchase it uh, and redeem it for the clan. And again, land is of huge importance. All he needs to do, along with paying the price for the land, is take Naomi in. Now, she's past childbearing years. Right? There's, there's no need or it's not impossible for him to, to carry on an heir with uh, Naomi. So someday what this means for his sons is that this land that he's about to acquire will go on to them. Right? This, is a, this is a no-brainer in real estate. So he says, I will redeem it. Right? And the first time you read this, or, or if you've forgotten the story, you're thinking, come on, Boaz. You're this businessman. Have you never negotiated before? You just set that up on a platter for him. Of course, he's going to redeem it. But Boaz knows what he's doing. Listen to him in verse 5. He says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So, so he says to this no-name redeemer, by the way, there's one little detail that I almost forgot to mention. Probably won't even make a difference to you, but if you want to redeem the land, you also get Ruth. Who needs you to perpetuate the line of her dead husband, Malon? I'm sure your family won't mind that. So you're going to have a son for Malon in order for that son to get the inheritance, the land that you pay for. And Boaz was also quick to point out that, oh yeah, Ruth is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. She's a foreigner. So you would buy back this land, marry a Moabite, have a son with her in order for the son to get the land that you paid for. How does that sound? Well, Boaz knew what he was doing, and you can picture the crowd here. Everyone's eyes are getting big. They're whispering as they're looking at Mr. So-and-so, Redeemer, taking in everything that he heard. All eyes are on him, and he opens his mouth in verse 6 and says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. 
take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Yes. <laughs> That's what we wanted. Good job, Boaz. Pause right there for a moment, though. I just want to make a couple observations. I'll let you unpack these later about this, this no-name uh, redeemer. He evaluates the situation through the lens of what's in it for me. And that's naturally how all of us think, but that is not the way of God's kingdom. I've just been wondering this week, like how often does this keep me from being the hands and feet of Jesus? I'm just continuously thinking, man, what does this do for me? What does this do for me? What does this do for me? That is not the way of the gospel. Second thing, think about what this guy missed out on. If you know the end of the story, he missed out on being a part of that, right? Instead of, a known name. He would have been named in the line of David, in the line of Jesus, but he didn't want to impair his inheritance. We value the wrong things. Unpause. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. Uh, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So he takes off his sandal, sealing the deal. And then in verse nine, we come to Boaz's final words in the story. He says to the elders and all the people that are present, your witnesses this day that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And just think about the, the journey of how Ruth has been described throughout this book. At first we meet her and we don't know anything about her except that one of Naomi's sons married a Moabite. So, so she's a no-name at first. And then standing next to Naomi when they arrive in, in Bethlehem, you, you remember, Naomi says, I went away full, but I've come back empty, even though Ruth is right there. And she just swore, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people be my people. Your God will be my God. And, and Naomi, <laughs> and saying, I've returned empty, she's just valued her as as nothing or less than nothing. Then we get to chapter two when she meets Boaz and she describes herself with, with this word translated uh, in, in English as servant, but, but the word means slave. I mean, it could not be a lower word. And, and then we get to Ruth three and she again uses the word servant, um, but it's a, it's a different word. It's a word that, that really is inviting relationship and she proposes marriage. And now in Ruth four, this Moabite is called the wife of Boaz. Right, she is fully brought in to the Israelite family. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Right, they pray that, that this woman, Ruth, would be like Rachel and Leah. And if you don't remember, between the two of them, they had a 
ton of kids. They had 12 sons that ended up being the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're praying this for this outsider, for this Moabite woman, that, that she would be as fruitful as they were. Verse 12. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Tamar is back in Genesis 38. It's a long story that I'll make short, but it's it's another story about a widow. And and we know what's supposed to happen, right, to provide for the widow so so that the family line continues on. But Judah, her father-in-law, did not provide the the brother like like he was supposed to. So things get really shady. She tricks her father-in-law into thinking that she's a prostitute, and he impregnates her. And, and, and it's crazy, but, but God continues this line in spite of human sin, right? And there's way more we could tell about this story, but, but here's the parallel I want to point out, that, that Tamar is a Canaanite, right? She also was an outsider. She was not an Israelite. So this non-Israelite woman who carried on the line of Judah, they're, they're praying that similarly God would be just as faithful, that he would continue this line with another outsider, that he would do that for Ruth, and they pray this blessing over them. Now, in our excitement that, that it's working out, that Ruth and Boaz are married, we realize, and last time she tried to have kids, it didn't work out. Ten years of barrenness. So we wonder, is God going to give them children? Verse 13 So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. That's a lot packed into one little verse, but but yes, God gives them the ability to have a son. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and we see God behind everything in this book, right? He's he's not front and center much. Really, it's just in in Ruth 1.6, that God is front and center, where it says that the Lord visited the land. He's provided food, which is one of Ruth and Naomi's needs. And now we see it again, that God has provided a family. That was their other need. They they need food, they need family, and God has provided both. And this little book reminds us that God alone is the one who's able to meet our deepest needs. And I just, I got to ask you today, Are you trying to get your deepest needs met somewhere other than God? Your career can't meet those needs. Your your family can't meet those needs. Only God can meet those needs. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I've given birth to him. He's called, this baby is called the Redeemer. I'm not aware of any other place in the Old Testament where the, the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer is a child. Right? Everywhere else, I think it's an adult. And notice also that, that they tell Naomi, man, Ruth is better than seven sons. You said you came back empty when she had clung to you. Now these women correct Naomi. They say, Ruth is is better to you than even seven sons would have been. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And Ruth, you probably noticed, 
in this chapter. She's in the background uh, of, of this final scene. Even though she's the one that, that had the baby, but it's Naomi that's front and center. And the story obviously began with Naomi front and center. And now at the end, it's, it's Naomi. In, in chapter one, she said that the hand of God was against her. He brought me back empty. And now here in chapter four, the narrator wants us to very clearly understand what God has done for Naomi, how much he loves Naomi. A son has been born to Naomi. He has not left her high and dry. We, we must learn to wait on Yahweh, to trust in him and what he is doing. Eventually, we will see that all our complaints against God are false. God shows himself faithful to his people time and time again. So we read the name Obed, and it seems like, as most stories go, that this is a good ending, right? We would expect, if this were a movie, for the screen to go black and the credits to roll. Uh, I don't know if you're a fan of Marvel movies. Uh, my, my kids have uh, made me a fan of Marvel movies. The, the screen goes black, the credits roll, and what does everyone do in the theater? They sit there because they know that though that story is done, we're going to get another little scene that's going to connect this to the bigger story. So then it says, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. We'll get to verse 18 in a moment. But in the center of one of the worst times, one of the darkest times in the history of God's people, God is at work to provide the greatest king in the history of God's people. And he used this, this foreign Moabite woman. I love that God used this outsider. Ruth the Moabite, to be in the family line of Jesus. My guess is that, that not many, if any of us, are, are Jewish people. We are all outsiders that, that God has brought into the family. And we, we know that Jesus' blood was shed for the nations. And it's a story like this that should help us to not be surprised by that because the blood of the nations coursed through Jesus' veins. Verse 18 now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. He gives us 10 generations here. And I think there's some symbolism here. We remember the, the only other time in the story where we hear 10, it's 10 years of famine. Right? It's 10 years of, of death of barrenness, of, of being out of God's land. And there's another interesting connection with the number 10 and Moabites. I think it's in Leviticus 23. It says, no Ammonite or Moabite can enter into the assembly to the 10th generation. And yet God is, is bringing Moabites. He's bringing others into the family line. So we come to realize this story is about so much more than just this little struggling family like 3,000 years ago. This story is directly connected to the narrative of God saving. God wanted this little story to be told and remembered among God's people generation after generation because God has been redeeming a people for himself. God has been setting a people free from sin by paying a price. 
Uh, think about Boaz with me for, for just a moment, like why he could redeem. Because there's, there's three things necessary to redeem. You, you have to have the right of redemption, right? You had to be, uh, you had to be kin. Uh, someone outside of the family could not do it. You, you, the second thing is you have to be able to pay the price of redemption, right? You need the resources to, to pay the cost. And third, you have to want to redeem. You have to have the desire to redeem. Now, this no-name redeemer, he, he had the right. My guess is he did have the means. He had the resources, but he didn't have the desire. Boaz had the right. He had the ability to pay, and he had the desire. But let, let's not think that there wasn't a cost here to Boaz, right? It's the same cost. The, the no-name redeemer just didn't want to pay the price. He wasn't willing to sacrifice. But Boaz, he reminds us of our redeemer. Uh, let's contrast chapters 1 and 4 and, and just these multiple themes that, that we see through this. We see Death to life, right? In this short story, chapter one starts with three deaths, and now the story ends with the birth, and, and not just the birth of Obed, but we see the birth of future generations. And I think there's a theme that's easy to miss, this death to life theme, right? It's, it is a picture of the gospel. It's so easy to miss that, that God is the one that brings us from death to life. We cannot do it as God working in ways that so often we're just oblivious to until it's right in front of us or, or maybe it's even passed us by. God brings from bitterness to joy. He brings from emptiness to fullness, right? No husband, no sons to, man, Ruth is worth more than seven sons and here's your grandbaby, Obed. God brings us from cursed to blessed. And he brings us from being hopeless to a secure hope, right? Ruth 4 isn't the end of the story. The narrator tells us this isn't the end. And even with King David, it points ahead to Jesus. So we see how God was back in the days of the judges. He was setting up not just David, the greatest Israelite king, but Jesus, the King of Kings. We see our great redeemer who has the right to redeem. He, he is the God man. He's the only one who could redeem. He has the resources to redeem by living the sinless life. His blood can pay the price for our sin, and he has the desire to redeem. So there are a lot of ways that this story connects with us today. Thousands of years later, God is still at work. He never stops. He's committed to his people. So the, the same God that was working for the good of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, the same God that directed Ruth so that she just so happened to go to Boaz's field, this is the same God today. That even in the middle of dark times, whether it's the time of the judges or, or dark times in the 21st century, God is at work for his glory and for the good of his people. And my guess is that, that you found yourself uh, intrigued by this story, maybe loving this story, but truly it felt insignificant until we see at the end what God was plotting generations later. When we follow God in obedience, we have no clue the significance of what he is up to. But know this, that there is nothing insignificant about following God, even in what seems just like everyday, regular, maybe mundane, boring circumstances. God is constantly working. And we don't know, 
We don't have a clue what the ramifications are uh, of our obedience to him in everyday life. But I love this in Ephesians 3.10. It says, so that through the church, right, through God's people, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that the everyday obedience of God's people to God that might appear to us as being completely insignificant, maybe even inconsequential. It's significant because God is at work. God is displaying his glory through the church. And we might not have a clue how God is going to use your little faithful decision this afternoon to weave his beautiful tapestry, right? You might not find out until eternity, uh, maybe years of praying for someone, how God used that, how God is using his people, the church, to display his glory in ways that we just cannot fathom. This little story reminds us that really we need God to be the author of our story. The final chapter of your story, if God has been the author, the final chapter will end well. When we trust God, the story will end well. And the path, like I said, getting there, it will be bumpy. There will be detours. There will, there will be plenty of, of, of circumstances that we don't love, but oh, how the story ends. But when God is not the author of your story, it will not end well. You might manage your path perfectly. You might execute your plan and get everything that you want to but the final chapter will not resolve the way you want it to. You will not go from empty to full. You will not go from cursed to blessed. You will not go from death to life. Please trust in God to author your story. And lastly, what do we do with this story right now, just before Christmas? Man, I'd encourage you, find someone to tell this story to. Tell them the story that led to the baby born in the manger Tell them the reason that we celebrate Christmas. Tell the story behind the Christmas story because Jesus is the Redeemer behind the human Redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. He is the Redeemer in each of our own salvation stories. He came to us when we were lost, when we were outsiders. He didn't just make us feel valuable, but in Christ, God made us valuable. Yes, Naomi and Ruth's stories ended up being a, a part of a much bigger narrative than they ever could have imagined. And so it is with your story and with my story when we trust Christ. We are part of the grand story of God reconciling people to himself through Jesus. Let's pray. God, we, we praise you for the, um, the brilliance of, of how this story was written for us. God, how this story reminds us that, that you are at work, God, that you are good, that, that you are uh, our loving Father that has redeemed us. God, I pray that we would be a people that just want to boldly live for you, that, that, that want to tell to anyone who will listen the story of how we were saved from our sin, of our, of our great Redeemer who, who went out of his way to come down to pay the price for us so that we could be forgiven of our sin. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.